welcome back again to another episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zach Schmall. The Five Things I Read This Week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at enteringthepublicsquare.com. The podcast is hosted there. You can also find the podcast in iTunes or the Google Play Store. So there's plenty of ways to stay in touch if you want to. So this week, we're back to some random articles again. I don't know that I have a theme for you or not one that stands out to me as particularly self-evident. But there's a lot of questions about, all right, where's our society heading? Where's our culture heading? What do we make of the direction that we're heading in? And so, if I had to choose a theme for these five articles, it would probably be that questioning why we do what we do, and how as Christians we respond to some of the things that our culture does that perhaps we may not agree with all the time. And so, I'm going to start off with actually an old article from 2016, December 7th, 2016, from the Imaginative Conservative. It was written by Daniel Latier, The Death of Self-Education, The Death of the West. So, the title is rather self-explanatory, but there's kind of this, uh, this question that self-education and this tendency for some of us to learn our entire lives seems to be going downhill, uh, particularly in the West. Ladia writes in one part, human nature seems to teach us that most people are only motivated to do something if there's a tangible reward, and there's not much reward for self-education in our institutionalized, unmeritocratic society. And so, I mean, that's the the theme of the whole article, is that we have so much stuff, we can learn a lot. You think about how many resources are online, and I know a lot of the internet's junk. I fully understand that. You might think this podcast is junk. I hope you don't, but you may. And so with all of this, um, with all of this information and all of these resources, I mean, there's not a whole lot of value for a lot of people to self-educate because there's no, there's no benefits. So for example, I could go online and learn everything there was to know about accounting and taxes. But if I don't literally go through the right education programs to be eligible to sit for my CPA, then I'll never be able to do such things. And I understand why there needs to be, obviously, some kind of institutionalized work. But in a meritocracy, if I learn everything I need to learn, and I can prove I need to learn them, does it really matter if I went through a formal program, or if I was a student 
and really dedicated my life to learning, let's say, about accounting in this situation. And Vladimir points out most of the most of the problem is that this is happening to our whole culture. So students aren't being told to read Plato, for example. I mean, I never read Plato. Well, I read a little Plato my freshman year of college in the honors program at the University of Vermont. We read a little Plato, if I recall right, but not a whole lot. And I never read The Republic until my master's degree in apologetics, ironically enough. And since then, I've read it again in my PhD program. But it's kind of sad that such a fundamental intellectual giant was never even brought to my attention, really, until... I mean, I was probably, what was I, 23, 24 at the time. That's a while to not understand one of, really, the men who made Western civilization what it is. And so, you know, maybe what we need to do then, as Christians too, because this applies to the church too. I mean, we have a responsibility to learn. Learn the Bible, learn about the Bible. And there's a lot of resources. We have no excuse for not having plenty of resources. If that's the case, then why aren't we self-educating? And a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this too, it's hard to get motivated to learn something if there's not a tangible reward. So if I don't, you know, get a degree, if I don't get a certificate, if I don't, at the end of the day, you know, get paid more or the rewards for self-education are not for the love of education itself. And that's a problem. And that's what Ladier is talking about. That if American society goes down this road where we don't want to learn for the sake of learning, but we only learn for the stuff we can get or the benefits that may, maybe are financially derived from it, then we're going to have a lot of people who don't know anything. And they don't learn anything. And they don't care. And at the end of the day, that leads to severe problems for our country, but also, by extension, for the world. So this article, if you want to check it out, is from the Imaginative Conservative. It was written way back on December 7th, 2016. I saw it on Facebook this week. That's how it came across my attention. It was written by Daniel Ladier, The Death of Self-Education, The Death of the West. Now we're going to stay with the imaginative conservative because I like them and I think they're pretty awesome. And this article was written by James E. Person Jr. It's entitled The Legacy of C.S. Lewis and it was published on April 23rd of 2018. You're all made a herd. I helped create a journal called An Unexpected Journal. And our first issue was focused on the abolition of man, one of the most legendary 
books I would say ever written. And certainly my favorite work written by C.S. Lewis. I mean, I love Narnia. Narnia is amazing. That being said, there's something about the abolition of man that speaks such an obvious truth that's so needed in our world today that I think it deserves the status above Narnia, in my opinion. You might disagree with me. You also might disagree why I put it above mere Christianity. You know, you're free to do that if you want, but I would still intend the abolition of man is C.S. Lewis' best work. Now, this article is a really good overview on the works of C.S. Lewis. And what, what it emphasizes to me is just when you're someone who speaks truth, people listen. For example, check this out. Today, it is readily clear that Lewis' popularity refuses to wane. Indeed, approximately 2 million copies of Lewis's books are sold each year in the United States and the United Kingdom, six times the number sold in the author's lifetime. Now, when the author points this out, person points this out, yeah, statistics aren't everything, but if you say something true, is it surprising that people are going to listen? Probably not. People listen when there's truth involved. And when we move on then, you know, Lewis, he wrote about major, major themes. He wrote about joy a lot. In The Abolition of Man, he wrote about truth. In Mere Christianity, it's an apologetic text. In Narnia, he hovered just about every theme that he hovers in everything else he wrote. The Space Trilogy, which some people prefer to be called the Ransom Trilogy, is rich with themes about good and evil, rich with themes that, again, like Narnia, permeate the rest of his work, but we see it in an imaginative context. And here's what Lewis said, and this is where I really want to... Uh, to bring this out for y'all. Think of me, Lewis once wrote in a letter, as a fellow patient in the same hospital who, having been admitted a little bit, or a little earlier, could give some advice. That's awesome. I love that. And why, why do I love that? I love that because the, uh, you know, there's something to be learned from other people and the humility I, I love that and there's you know when we're thinking about Lewis and we're thinking about all that he did and we read this overview of all the great things that he wrote I mean we can't we would be remiss if we didn't think about the uh, you know the real world applications that come today and as Christians today this is what we should be thinking about. How do we, and we're not all as brilliant as him. I'm not, I'm, I'm betting probably you're not. Oops, sorry, I insulted my audience. That would be tragic. But, I mean, really, he was a very bright guy, and most of us aren't like that. But our goal 
should be, in whatever means necessary, be it non-fiction, be it fiction, however we can communicate truth to the world around us. This article just highlights the many ways in which C.S. Lewis did that, and I think that's something I'd like to work on, and I think most of you would too. So this article was written by James E. Person, Jr., The Legacy of C.S. Lewis. It was published on the Imaginative Conservative on April 23rd, 2018. Now we're changing track a little bit to a very short article, but it's it's kind of whole. It's from the Searcy Institute, written by Joshua Gibbs on April 23rd, 2018. It's entitled, My Son is Very Smart. So, Gibbs is a teacher, and people often come in and say, you know, my son's really smart, right? My son is very smart. And Gibbs points out something really vital. Quote, Christ did not choose smart disciples. He chose men who would be taught. He chose men who would hear his most difficult teachings and stay with him because they did not know where else to go. You know, there's some deep insight in that, and this is a very short article. But, oftentimes, we think, oh, I'm smart, I'm good, I know what I'm doing, I can handle all of, you know, all that comes at me because I'm smart, and I know what to do. In reality, as Christians, we can't rest on our own smarts. It's not going to work. At the end of the day, all of our efforts are going to fail. We can't be perfect all the time, and we certainly can't rely on our own wisdom. When it's all over, we're going to fail at times. We're probably going to fail a lot. And this is really... You know, I, I think we all want to think we're smart. I mean, I do. And this is Gibbs' almost concluding line. To draw very close to Christ, we must leave mere intelligence behind. We can't, and then this is me, we can't just rest on our intelligence. If we're satisfied with that, and oh, I'm very smart, so all's well, no problem, we're missing out on a lot, and ultimately, we're going to have problems. So, this is a short article, but I think it's worth checking out from the Searcy Institute. My Son is Very Smart, written by Joshua Gibbs on April 23rd, 2018. Now we're moving on to the Federalist. The problem with social media isn't the media, it's the social. Written by Robert Trachinsky on April 24th of 2018. So, we've talked about the problems of Facebook a lot, and social media in general. But there's a big point that Trichinsky points that he makes in this article that I thought was really, really well taken. So, let's think about communication as a general rule. 
if I read a book, you know, I read it on my own, I think about what I read, and I judge it, right? I judge it based on, and I might accept it, I might reject it, but it's just me and the book. Now, if I'm talking to you, we, you know, try to understand each other, and it's just you and me in the room. So there's really no point in, you know, put-downs and slams or what Trekinski has rhetorical points going. Because what's the point? I mean, it's you and me. There's no audience to impress. And here's what uh, Trekinski writes. So this is about social media. People in this kind of public exchange are no longer talking to one another. They're playing to the crowd. To be more exact, they're playing to their crowd. They're talking for the approval of the mob, whether it's the woke social justice mob or the trigger the snowflake anti-PC MAGA mob. Now, that's a, it's a good point, right? I mean, we've all probably done this. You post something on Facebook, you know people are going to get riled up. And, you know, if you're like me, and I'll admit to this, sometimes you know exactly what people are going to respond and you know exactly what they're going to say because you've hit a hot button issue that they tend to get heated about and you've heard this argument before so you have that perfect response the perfect rebuttal for when they hum at you I mean I shouldn't do it but I do I've totally done that before But, the point's well taken. This is fundamentally different than how communication has ever worked before. Unless you were a politician, maybe a hundred years ago, you didn't really have these kinds of public one-on-one debates where everyone's listening to you. Normally, it was me and my friends sitting around talking about ideas. And, and let me tell you how I see this like manifested in my life. So. We have a Bible study here in Vermont for young adults on Wednesday nights. And in this room, we're all friends. And we're trying to work through the Bible. That's what we're doing. We're studying the Word of God, trying to do our best to understand what God would have for us. Now, you know, sometimes we don't always agree. It's, it's happened where we've had people understand certain passages differently. But, we're not grandstanding, we're not trying to score points. Why? Because we're friends and we know each other, and we don't want to hurt each other, we want to encourage each other, and we want to work together to figure this out. Now, put this online, on Facebook or on Twitter, where someone doesn't really know you at all, and they're not really your friend, so they don't really care if they dig into you. They don't care about encouraging you. And why don't they care? Because they don't know you. It's a fundamentally different form of group conversation than we've ever had in the history of the world. I mean, even... Even if you consider reading a book... I can yell at a book, 
But ultimately, no one cares, and it's really weird if I'm in an empty room yelling at a book. And so what what Trakinsky points out about this tendency, then, is that, so say I post that controversial thing, and I know that certain people are going to get fired up about it. That's one half of the equation. I also know that if I post that pro-life article, there are certain people who are going to be like, preach it, you know, this is awesome, go for it. And so I post it because, no, I'm not saying I always do this, but I'm just, I'm playing the part here that Trekinski wants, and he says a lot of people do, which I, I believe is true. I post it because I want the approval of that group. Now for me, I, I would clarify that I tend to post things that I think are true and let the chips fall where they may. I mean, I've written some controversial things that have gotten different people mad at me. I, you know, I post pro-life things that stress people out, the resurrection of Jesus. I stress out my conservative friends when I critique Donald Trump. Um, you know, there's... I stress out my liberal friends when I say that Trump might have done something right. I mean, there are... You know, there's a lot of things that I have, it, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. And I, uh, you know, it's a fundamentally different procedure when you think about social media. When you think about how debate has ever been done in the past. Because now it's so easy for me to get my people in my line and a hater to my audience, and to know I'm going to freak out another audience, and to be handled like, oh, well, that's fine, because I want, you know, my tribe to be happy with me if I'm seeking their approval. And like I said, I, I'm sure I do that, but I try not to, and I know I've stressed out a lot of people over the years with a lot of what I've written. So... You know, I try to pursue truth, actually, instead of preach to the tribe. But we all know this tendency, right? I mean, we've all seen it happen on social media. So, you know, you should check out this article by Robert Trakinsky. The problem is social media isn't the media, it's the social. It was written on The Federalist on April 24th, 2018. Finally, I'm saving the best for last. Or the most pathetic for last. On April 19th, G. Hume wrote an article that's been making the rounds online. 21 books you don't have to read. Surprise, guess what was on there? Well, you guessed it if you hadn't heard already. Number 12, the Bible. The Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. False. No Christian believes that man produced the Bible. It's God-breathed, divinely inspired. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even 
at times ill-intentioned. Okay, to hit my points. Repetitive, of course, there are certain themes that go through the whole Bible. Yes, there are stories that repeat in the Gospels. I think the same project would probably say that, oh, well, if those stories didn't repeat themselves in the Gospels, they can't be true because it's only one testimony. So, the repetition, I mean, give me a break, that's ignorant. Self-contradictory. Okay, this author, and it's the editors of GQ, so we don't really know who it was. They don't cite any of these alleged contradictions. Yeah, there's a lot of literature online they had read that's an ignorant critique of the Bible. Sententious. I mean, okay. Basically, the Bible's moralizing. I mean, it's a book of moral teaching. Why would you not expect it to moralize? I mean, that's... God provided it as a way to help us live in a way that would glorify Him. So, I mean, call it sententious if you want, but that is kind of the purpose, is to help moralize. Now, sententious does kind of imply being pompous. I mean, you read the Psalms and you hear people who are broken. You read Proverbs and you hear a father trying to help his son. You read the New Testament letters and you hear Paul talking about himself as a sinner. I mean, okay, sententious, maybe not foolish. I mean, the Bible says it itself that to those who don't believe, you know, this is all kind of theme foolish. So, I mean, not surprising. The editors of GQ think that. And even at times ill-intentioned, you know, I'd like to know what they think is ill-intentioned. Again, they don't say anything. And so then they go on to write, If the thing you heard was good about the Bible was the nasty bits, then I propose a go to Christoph's The Notebook. A marvelous tale of two brothers who have to get along when things get tough. The subtlety and cruelty of this story is like that famous sword stroke that plunged upward through the bowels of the lungs and the throat and into the brain of the rowers. Okay. So, you're not going to read the Bible. So here's what you should read. You should read this book called The Notebook, which I haven't read. But apparently it's about two brothers, right, who have to get along when the going gets rough. Um, okay. So, the, you know, I, I haven't read this book, The Notebook, but the rest of this list is kind of things that, alright, so I, you know, you didn't read this, but maybe you should read that because there are some hopperable themes. So I'm assuming the idea of two brothers having to get along when things get rough is maybe the theme from the Bible that this author believes 
Oh, and there's the author. It's Jesse Ball. Jesse Ball, I'd love to have you on the website. Let's talk about your article. Or your part of an article. It's ridiculous. But anyway. So, is that maybe the redeeming theme of the Bible? That people persevere even when they're going to get rough. I mean, we see that in the Bible, right? Times get tough for a lot of people. I mean, Joseph is the obvious example of that. Noah is a pretty good example of that. Abraham isn't a bad example of that either. Moving to the New Testament, I mean, you read the book of Acts, and they have to get beat up all the time. And, you know, they persevere. And, you know, they have to get along. They have to keep moving. So maybe that's the parallel. I really don't know. I haven't read this, the notebook by Agatha Christoph. I mean, come on. If you're going to criticize the Bible, at least you, know, you start out with some snarky comments, then you produce claims with no evidence, not even linking to other references that make the case a lot better than you did. For example, it is repetitive. There could be a hyperlink to, oh, well, here's all the ways the Bible's repetitive. Self-contradictory. Here's a link. It doesn't even do that. So it's lazy journalism, at least. But it's also... Interestingly, you don't see the Quran on this list. You don't see any of the Hindu sacred texts on this list. You don't see... You know, the Book of Mormon on this list. You see the Bible, and why? Because it's perfectly acceptable to mock the Bible. There's some belief in the intelligentsia of the West, at least, but more generally, the media culture that, you know, we can make fun of the Bible all we want because, I don't know why, but they seem to think it's okay. And, I mean, they have free speech like I've been writing about on my website this week, entering the public square, of course they can exercise their free speech. But, you know, I gotta say, if you're gonna use your free speech, at least use it for something intelligent. Don't waste your ink on dumb claims that really make no sense without justification. There have been plenty of intelligent people who have critiqued the Bible and Christianity over the years. I, I don't know that GQ Magazine fits the bill of that. So, this article was entitled 21 Books You Don't Have to Read. It was written on April 19th. It was technically written by the editors of GQ. Although, apparently, I now know this subsection on the Bible. And there are other books, and they're all hundred ridiculous, honestly. But it was written by Jesse Ball. So I hope that you, uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. It's been a little random, I know, but, you know, it's more fun that way. I like it. I like being random. So, until we meet again, everyone, have an excellent week.